Good morning. I have a disclaimer as we get started this morning. The disclaimer is this, what I'm about to say is not meant to lead to pointing fingers. I'll let that hang. (laughs) Sometimes people can be difficult. No, don't be pointing. (laughs) The fact is, people can be difficult. We can be difficult with others. When you encounter a person who is difficult, chances are you're going to experience conflict. Now, there's many reasons for conflict and, and probably too many to list. But the reality is, you typically know when you're in conflict with someone because conflict looks a certain way. One of those ways might look like this. <laughs> where you got two individuals with a megaphone screaming at one another, trying to make their point. That's conflict. Another way conflict might look is like this, where you're screaming at the top of your lungs. I mean, if you actually were able to see this pretty clearly, like her, her veins and, and, and ligaments are, are like popping out of her neck, right? While he, on the other hand, is clearly an actor and he's almost laughing, which might be the reason why she's screaming so loud, I'm not sure. But it can look like this. When we're in arguments like this with the megaphone or what we see here, it often leads to something like this. (laughs) If we let it. Or it might lead to something like this. Confusion, where clearly one person is confused at why the other person is in conflict. That's usually me, by the way. I'm usually like, what did I do? I don't know why we're in conflict right now. Another way it might look is this, where the person just had enough and they've checked out. Like, I'm done. You can keep screaming all you want. I'm checked out. Being fed up. Conflict is real. It's unavoidable in this life. The reality is we all have passions. We all have points of view. We all see things a certain way. So conflict is unavoidable. But how we handle conflict matters, especially as the body of Christ, as citizens of heaven. We have to handle our conflict with each other and the world differently. Unfortunately, This is not always the case. Unfortunately, even in the body of Christ, we don't know how to handle conflict. And that probably lands on our leadership. We don't do a good job explaining biblical model of conflict resolution. And as such, people get hurt. People leave churches. And if it's really bad, sometimes church splits happen. This morning, we're going to see instructions from Paul to the church in Philippi where this church was beginning to experience conflict. And so much so that Paul heard about the conflict and felt he needed to address it. 
This conflict was so bad, though we don't know what it was specifically, it was bad enough that it was risking division in the church, which is why it got to Paul in the first place. And so this morning, we're going to learn what Paul has to say to the church that is experiencing internal conflict among the believers. So I encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians 4. We've been working through Philippians for the last several, several weeks um, in our study called Citizens of Heaven. So if you don't have your own Bible with you, there are some in the chairs. We encourage you to please have one open. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, but before we read, let's, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, we want to breathe. We know that we may have even experienced conflict within the church, Lord. We may have even been hurt by such conflict, Lord. Lord, I pray that in this moment, anyone who might be feeling guarded in this moment would be able to just breathe and trust you through this message, Lord. That we would be able to learn and grow as the body of Christ, as citizens of heaven, Lord, through your word. Give us ears to, to hear your word, unfiltered, un, unhindered, Lord. Create an openness within us to receive what you have this morning so that we could be transformed even more. Lord, if there's anything within me that would hinder that, Lord, I, I do surrender that to you. Lord, we want you to speak. So Jesus, would you lead this time? Would you speak through your word? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can follow along in your own Bibles. I'll be reading out of mine. Chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. It's God's word. Peter start, uh, excuse me, Peter, Paul, yesterday was Peter, today's Paul. Um, <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. All right, Paul is writing to these believers in Philippi, right? And we've discussed, we've, we've already explained almost ad nauseum the context, right? That he's writing to these Greek, ethnically Greek people who are under Roman citizenship in Philippi, Greece, um, but are born-again believers. And so they've got kind of an identity crisis going on. They're, they're struggling with, with what to live out and how to live out. And he starts chapter 4 here saying, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And here we come again to a therefore. So say it with me. Anytime we come across a therefore, we ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, right. Right, this is good study of the word. Anytime we come across this therefore, we have to pause. We have to go, okay, wait, what's, it, what's this therefore connecting? What's it therefore? As we learned last week, Paul, 
Yes, Paul. Good. Got it right. Paul was <laughs> writing and, and explaining to these brothers and sisters in Christ uh, you know, that we're to stand out in the culture around us. That as citizens of heaven, uh, you know, the, the imagery that we used last, last week was the, the, the markers, right? Um, that's probably the one part you remember is the imagery, the, the box of markers, the colors of the world. Right? And, and we're called to be a highlighter among those, those markers. That's the point. That's the most recent point that, that Paul is making. And he says, you're supposed to join in imitating, join with me in imitating Christ as we walk out this heavenly citizenship. That we are to look different. Right? And so... He says, since we are to, and then he comes to the therefore, so since we are to live as citizens of heaven and not citizens of the world, my brothers, whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Because we are to live out and stand out among the culture around us, Paul, Paul gives this uh, exhortation, this, this encouragement to stand firm in the Lord. Because he knows that when we stand out, we're going to face conflict. We're going to face pushback from the world. So he encourages them. He says, stand firm. This, this wording literally means don't be moved. That's what it means to stand firm in the Lord. Don't be moved. To persevere. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, we can only do this when we are in the Lord. When we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit day in and day out. Because in our own strength, we can't stand firm. And that's why Paul says to stand firm in the Lord. The language here for brothers is that brethren, so depending on which translation you're reading from, it may say brethren. It does mean brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for. This love word is the agape form, so it's uh, beloved, esteemed. Those whom I love sacrificially, who I would do anything for. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about to these brothers and sisters in Christ. It's that agape love. He says, to the, brother, the brethren, the brothers and sisters whom I love and long for. The word long for literally means longed for or missed. That I greatly desire to be with. Right? How many of us can relate? I know I can still. You know, like There's brothers back home that I long to spend time with. There's family that I long to see. That's the language here, right? And it has nothing to do with my current situation. It's just my, my, I love family that's back home, and I love friends that I have back home, and sometimes I just long to see them and be with them. That's the language that Paul's using here. And he's using it to this group of Philippian believers whom he had the... the, the the benefit and, and the privilege to plant the church. So they're very near and dear to him, some of these believers. He says, I love and I long for you. And then he puts together my joy and crown. 
Joy here means gladness. Or another way of saying it is that that the Philippians were the cause or the occasion of his joyfulness. That when he thinks of these believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ, it creates a sense of joy in remembering them and thinking about them. But not only are these, these brothers and sisters his joy, they're also his crown. We're going to sit here with this a little bit because we need to unpack this. In Greek, there's two words for crown. There's diadema, or diadem, and there's stephanos. Diadem would be the kind of crown that you would give to a king, right? a kingly crown, a royal diadem. Stephanos would be the kind of crown that would be given to an athlete who won a race, almost like a, a, a wreath crown. Like, think of like the Greek Olympics, right? They would give them a, 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 a wreath-style crown. Like, good job, here's your medal, right? Those are the two Greek words used for crown. So the, the question comes, which one is Paul saying? Which one is he using? Well, he's using Stephanos, the the achievement-oriented crown. It's not a diadem. He's not saying that these believers give him royalty. He's saying that these, these believers are his crown, his achievement. And you might go, well, that still doesn't land really well. I don't quite understand what that means. Well, Paul's saying that these brothers and sisters who are living as citizens of heaven, whom he loves dearly and calls much joy in his life, are the very crowning reward as they stand fast in their faith. So let's pause with that. Paul is talking about discipleship. How many of us, when we think of discipleship, think about those who were discipling as becoming a crowning achievement? Probably not many of us. Paul is saying to the Philippians that as they live as citizens of heaven, as they uh, continue to be faithful in the Lord, it will prove to be his heavenly reward. That there's something to come in heaven because of this. Often, we view faith as our own personal private matter. And yes, there's a private component to our faith. That my faith is only a reflection of me and me alone. And yes, there's a part of that. But Paul reveals here and in other passages that we are all part of one another. We're the body of Christ. When one part suffers, the whole suffers. When one part causes celebration, the whole part celebrates. There's an interconnectedness in the body of Christ. Now let me be clear what I I mean by this. We don't disciple others because of the reward. That would be selfish. That would be wrongly motivated. 
our reward also doesn't hinge on the disciple's life either. So in other words, whatever comes to, to bear fruit in that person's life that we've poured into to disciple, if, they, if it never took hold, that doesn't bear on us. When we disciple another out of obedience to the Lord, I'm rewarded for my obedience. My reward is not determined by my ability to disciple or even the end result of that effort. Rather, we are rewarded for our faithfulness to the Great Commission. That's what Paul is revealing here when he's talking about these Philippian believers being his joy and crown. I got behind on my slides here. Discipleship is more than a yes for Jesus. Discipleship is more than getting somebody to say yes. And discipleship is kingdom work that does receive an award in heaven. Again, we're not to be discipling because of the reward. We're discipling because we're called to. We're called to make disciples. He goes on in verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This language for agree in the Lord is the same verb that Paul uses 10 times in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 7. Two times in, in chapter 2, verse 2. And one time in verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 15, it's used twice. Chapter 3, verse 19, here in chapter 4, verse 2, and again we'll see it in, in verse 10, twice. He uses this same word 10 times. What is he talking about when he says to agree in the Lord? It means to be of the same mind, to think the same way, to find unity in Christ. So why is he saying this to these two women? Eodia, Eodia, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Eodia and Syntyche, right? Well, this word entreat is the original word parakaleo, which means to summon, to address to, to speak to, to admonish, to exhort, to beg, to beseech, to instruct or teach. The idea is that he's asking earnestly for them to do something. And notice how he says, I am asking Iodia and I ask Syntyche. He could have, in language, it would have been appropriate for him to just do it the one time, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. But in an effort to not single out one over the other, he repeats himself for both women. He wants to make sure that Yodia and Syntyche both know they're to come together in unity, to have one-mindedness. Like I shared when we began, these are two women 
who are apparently in conflict with each other. We, we don't know anything else. This is the only time in Scripture we are made aware of them. Um, so there, we don't know the, the extent of what was going on. But as a part of the body of believers there in Philippi, it's apparent that whatever conflict they had, it was causing friction in the church. So much so that the church elders in Philippi send word to Paul for advice on how to treat this conflict. Because they, they're like, we don't know, this is going to cause something painful and we don't know how to handle this. So all we know about these two women is that they were causing, they were in some form of conflict that was causing enough distress to the church and enough friction among the body of believers that they needed external help from Paul. I have an illustration that I'm going to use. Relationships are three-way. Every relationship you have, whether it's with your spouse, a friend, uh, daughters, children, whatever the case may be, every relationship you have is a three-prong. There's you, them, and God. Now, the rule of triangles is if you keep the shape and you move the dots on the lines it changes the, the perimeters, right? If you... Oh, each, here's the lines. So the line between you and God is your intimacy with God or intimacy with Jesus, how close you are, what's your relationship with God like. And the distance between you and them is your unity. As you draw closer to the Lord, your dot will move. As their intimacy with God changes, their dot will move, which creates a closer bond of unity. Notice the distance between the two dots. This is true of every relationship. So what Paul is basically saying to these two women is, keep your eyes on Christ not the conflict between you. And as you build on that intimacy with Christ and draw closer, you'll find unity among each other, a better unity among each other. Paul calls them to think the same way as him, to have his mind. He, he knows that as each of these ladies are able to think and set their minds on Christ, they will be able to reconcile their differences. Verse 3. He continues. And he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose name are in the book of life. True companion. Who, who is this true companion? Well, this 
could be a multitude of different people, and it has baffled commentators throughout all of church history who exactly Paul is talking about here. Some think that it might be Titus or Timothy or, or another disciple that Paul was, was discipling. We really don't know. We just know his role. Companion means yoke fellow in the original language. In other words, that whoever this companion was, uh, he was serving in the gospel in the same way that Paul was. Which means that he was probably an elder, at least a deacon of the church. The form of the word is masculine, therefore we can assume it refers to a male person. And that this person was apparently capable of helping these women in reconciliation and also the larger body of believers. The word true before this companion means, uh, bears the idea of being born in wedlock or legitimate, capable. Paul does use this very same word when he talks about Timothy and Titus. So that's what leads most commentators to believe that it's one of those two. But then the argument is, why doesn't he just name them? He does elsewhere. Whoever it is, Paul is confident in knowing that this companion, this true companion, was legitimately capable of leading reconciliation between these women and the church. So he reaches out to them. He says... Help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel. And th- this is where it kind of hurts, right? Because we see that these women are believers. They're not only troublemakers. They, they served with Paul side by side for the advancement of the kingdom. And yet here they are causing such a conflict. They worked with Paul side by side with Clement, and and some try to figure out who the Clement is. It was a very, very popular, common Roman name. So it could be the jailer. That would be appropriate, the Roman jailer that that, uh, was spared and came to salvation, along with his entire family that we've read about in the book of Acts. It could be. We have no other mention of a Clement anywhere else in Scripture. But we do know that uh, it was a very popular, common Roman name for a man in that day. So it could be any of the Clements in Rome. (laughs) Um, What's important to, to pick out of this is that Clement and these women were fellow workers. They were believers They were true believers in Christ and they worked together to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ with Paul himself and yet here these two women are now in conflict. So that bears the question, what leads disunity or conflict among brothers and sisters in Christ? What leads to such a conflict We don't know the exact point, as I explained. But there are some things we know that can lead to disunity and conflict among the brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Sin. Sin in my own life. Sin in the other person's life. Sin between us and our relationship can lead to disunity and conflict. Preferences. When things don't go the way I want them to go. Unspoken or unmet expectations that I have on the other person or that they might have on me can lead to disunity and conflict. Jealousy. Those are just a few that I came up with. I'm sure you could come up with a whole list of others. We have to understand that that even as believers in Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, we can bump heads with one another. We can have and experience conflict. How are we supposed to resolve that as believers? Because, my friends, we don't do it well. We do it just like the rest of the world. What's also interesting to pull out of this is that sometimes conflict needs a third party to help reconciliation happen. Sometimes conflict resolution takes a third party to help two individuals find reconciliation and find unity. Unfortunately, it doesn't typically get to that stage. People get fed up and they leave. Or they try to find unity with the other person and you just got two raging bulls in a china shop, right? Yeah, it just doesn't work. Which is why Paul calls on this true companion to help intercede and, and help bring these two together. Paul is calling this person, this true companion, into the conflict to bring these two women together in Christ and reconcile the differences. Sometimes the conflict gets that bad that we need a third person to come in. As believers, we are called to be different from the world. We are called to have relationships with one another that look different too even when we're in conflict. It has to look different from the world. That is the call. How we resolve conflict can't just be to cross our arms and huff and puff and, and when things don't go our way. We don't seek to kick the other person out of fellowship because of the conflict. Nor do we just leave fellowship over quarrels. We are to seek reconciliation with one another. We must seek unity and one-mindedness in Christ. And whether you know it or not, we actually are commanded to do so. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has given the body of believers the ministry of reconciliation. We are to look different in our conflict. We're not to look like the world. We're not to to break off fellowship and start new churches because we were mad at what the preacher said. We're to find unity in Christ. Unfortunately, we don't teach it very well. Do you know that in Matthew's gospel, and I should have had this prepared, this is just downloading right now, so go with me. In Matthew's gospel, when it comes to sin against a brother, we're called to go to the brother and ask for forgiveness. Right? There's also a passage in Matthew that if a brother has sinned against you, you're to go to the brother. And so, whether you have conflict with someone or someone has conflict with you and you're made aware of it, you're called to go to that person and seek reconciliation. We're not to sit here and go, well, I'm waiting for that person to come to me. They hurt, they're the one that hurt me. No. In Christ, the way the body of believers are to handle this are to go to the person and seek reconciliation. Either way, whether they've done harm to you or you've done harm to them. Because conflict resolution in the body of Christ must look different from the world. It must. So Paul is addressing these ladies and the church to find unity to reconcile their differences. Let that be our plea as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you speak through your word. We thank you for the true life examples to your your bride, your, your body, Lord, that you want us to find unity in you. Lord, I pray that anyone here that, that is being convicted by your spirit that, that needs to reconcile differences with someone somewhere, Lord, I pray that you would give them boldness and confidence to do so. Because, Lord, we need to stand out from the world. We need to be different in how we handle ourselves, both within the family and with the world. But Lord, we need you. We, we need you to lead us in that. Let us humble ourselves before you, Lord, so that you can do a work 
and revive our hearts again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.